Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from Carolina's Medical Center, EM Group. Today we have Dr. Katie Lopez, Natalie Wood, Jeremy Driscoll. This week's show is brought to you by July. Summertime fun? I think not. July. <laughs> so true. Now let's get on with the show. Today we are going to be talking about upper GI bleeds. So let's first talk about our stable upper GI bleeder. All right, Nat, you've got a healthy young female. She's presenting to you with maybe some hematemesis, maybe some dark stool. She looks pretty peachy clean, hemodynamically stable. Let's talk through a differential. All right, so my differential diagnosis for these people is pretty large. Um, one of the first things that I think about is PUD. So this is the most common cause. It can be associated with NSAID use as well as H. pylori infection um, and also smokers, which is a big uh, part of our population. I also think about erosive gastritis or esophagitis, which, which can be caused by alcohol, salicylates or NSAIDs, could be infectious or maybe stress from a severe illness, kind of like a Cushing's reaction. I also think about varices, we have a big population that has portal hypertension, causing them to have variceal bleeds. And then Mallory Y syndrome, if I have a patient who came in with repetitive vomiting. Now, I'm all about the zebras, so maybe some more rare causes of upper GI bleeding in these patients could be like a dulafoil lesion, which is arteries that protrude through the GI submucosa that eventually get covered up and not really seen under endoscopy, then, then spontaneously bleed again. Other causes being like NSAIDs and liver disease predisposing to these types of lesions. Other things like AVMs, you guys remember Osler-Weber-Rondu syndrome, I'm sure, from medical school. Malignancy, oh, yeah. aorta-enteric fistulas, and then finally ischemia and perforation. That's a lot of hoofbeats, so many oh, yes. zebras there. It could happen. It could happen. So maybe not a zebra, but maybe a whole other animal in general is something that's not really even an upper GI bleed, but could really fool you. How about those heavy nosebleeds or any sort of upper airway bleeds, and even maybe more common on the pediatric side, ingestions. Maybe a red popsicle? Or maybe just bleeding from mom, Ooh, from I'm on, breastfeeding. I'm on toxicology this month, so this, this excites me right now. Yeah. Beets? Ooh, beet juice. I've seen tons of red cherries. What about cheer wine? Cheer wine. We're, we're in the south here. <laughs> okay, you guys are getting crazy. But now let's talk about what we're going to do when we're actually in the room with these patients. Let's talk about our focus history and physical exam. So there are a few things that I ask specifically. Is this really a GI bleed? Like we said, is it coming from the nose and it's just been swallowed blood or an ingestion? We can use some of our GUIAC cards, specifically the ones we have here. We can test for both gastric aspirates, but be sure to check to see if your GUIAC cards at your local facility is able to distinguish between upper GI bleeding and lower GI occult blood. 
Uh, the next thing I want to ask for is about the timing and the amount. Is this person having just maybe a small fleck of blood that they see in the stool? Are they having gross melena? Is it just pouring out of their rectum? Are they vomiting with large amounts of hematemesis? That's really important and it'll guide kind of your therapies or what you need to get started early on these patients. Next, has this person had GI bleeds in the past? A lot of our patients with portal hypertension have had scopes in the past. You want to see if you can find a recent scope record to see do they have known variceal bleeding, have they undergone procedures, or any other additional information that could be helpful in guiding your care. Next, alcohol use, NSAID use, and smoking history. Remember, we said these are all irritants to the gastric lining. Next, what medications are the patient on? Is he on warfarin? Is she on antiplatelet agents that can predispose you to bleed more? And then finally, a good review of systems. Obviously, the next most important part is going to be our physical exam. And for a patient that's having an upper GI bleed, I focus on, obviously, number one, vital signs. They're vital guys. Get it. So number two is going to be the abdominal exam. If somebody has a peptic ulcer and now that's perforated, they might be peritonitic at this point. So do a really good focused abdominal exam. Do you and know then, the best way of seeing if someone's peritonitic? How? What I, what I learned from up to date is that you go up to the bedside and you just hip check the bed slightly. And if they're painful, they're peritonitic. That's truly the only way to assess for peritonitis, in my opinion. I also notice when my patient is writhing around on the stretcher screaming, please give me Dilaudid. I guess that's also a good... Yeah. Sense. Well, some people do that and they don't have a perforated peptic ulcer, but you know. I've got like the hip check. I've got good hip movements here. <laughs> Next time we're down in the department, I'll, I'll show you. Katie's hips don't lie, guys. She's from Uruguay. <laughs> Say it like it is. So the next thing that you need to consider, obviously, is a rectal exam. You got to check if this is gross blood, bright red blood. Is this melanotic stool? And that can give you an indication of where this bleed is coming from. And then I also like to look for signs and symptoms of liver failure. So jaundice, ascites, if they have the palmar erythema, spider nevi, kaput medusa, all of these types of things that you learned in medical school can also be important and indicate, you know, does this person have esophageal varices as well? Maybe you'll even be able to test for hepatomegaly or splenomegaly. I always do finger percussion to measure the borders of my liver on every patient I see. So I hope you guys are doing as thorough as exams as I am. Excellent. Excellent, Dr. Driscoll. Well, now... Moving on to a more debatable topic here, maybe. What are we going to order on these patients? What laboratory evaluations do we need to know about our upper GI bleeders? I mean, the thing I think we all agree on here that we need to know is what is their hemoglobin? What is their hematocrit? Usually we'll do that by obtaining a CBC with diff because we definitely want to also check their platelet count as well. There are some things that are a little bit more debatable. Some people want to order a chemistry so that we can take a look at what the BUN or the BUN creatinine ratio is. And then coags, perhaps if this patient is showing signs of significant bleeding, and type and screen, again, for the same thing. All right. So I think that's pretty straightforward. Really tailor your labs that you're ordering based on the patient that you see in front of you. But at a minimum, I think all these patients need to be evaluated their hemoglobin or hematocrit. All right. Let's talk about the treatment. The most common drug that your GI doc might ask you to grab in this scenario is? PPI. Yeah, your PPIs. So you've got two options, either oral or IV route. And thankfully, evidence has shown us that there's really no difference between the oral or IV route. So if your patient can tolerate oral, give this medication to them orally, especially if you're thinking about an outpatient treatment option. Now regarding IV therapy, you've got two options as well, drips versus bolus. There is a JAMA systematic review that showed 13 different RCTs revealing that there was no difference between drip versus bolus therapy in mortality, rebleeding, length of stay, or any transfusion. 
So if available, use those PPI boluses, especially in the ED where you don't want to tie up your nurses. Just give 80 milligrams of protonics and go on. Now, when we're looking at PPIs versus just placebo or even against the H2 blocker, there's really no difference in mortality. But the main thing is our PPIs do reduce surgical intervention and they reduce re-bleeding with the number needed to treat of only 15. So we are giving them for good reason. So the next treatment of choice is going to be based on what your local gastroenterologist is going to recommend. Some of the more common things that we've given down in our ED is going to be octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog. Basically how it works is it decreases gastric acid, decreases blood flow by a vasoconstriction of the splanchnic system. We usually start out with a 50 microgram bolus. However, there's still no evidence really that this decreases mortality. However, it may decrease the evidence of rebleeding in these patients. Okay, so the most important intervention that we can make in the emergency department is going to be antibiotics. And we've all heard this. Cirrhotic patients are already immunocompromised, and so they have increased risk of gut bacterial translocation. So you want to give them a gram of rocephin. Alternatively, you can give a quinolone like ciprofloxacin. And this is really the only treatment that has mortality benefit. The number needed to treat is 4 to prevent an infection, and the number needed to treat is 22 to save a life. That's how to save a life. Wow, Nat. So I definitely want to save a life, and I know I'm going to see 22 bleeders in my ED by the time I'm done with my career, so definitely be adding on antibiotics. Another agent that we might want to consider giving in these patients is our promotility agents. So we really want to increase gastric gut flow and get all of that stuff that's bleeding out of the stomach and through our GI system. There's a couple ways we can do that. Um, The most common is going to be our macrolides, either erythromycin or azithromycin. Some other people use Reglan also. And this really helps decrease the need for a second EGD look. But it can also help us with our intubation and making sure that we're moving along the contents in the stomach and we're not having a, a full stomach when going to intubate. Next, transfusion. Traditionally, the threshold to transfuse was a hemoglobin less than nine, yet there's mortality benefit with actually transfusion with hemoglobins less than seven. If your patient does have thrombocytopenia, less than 50,000 platelets, we mean, with active GI bleeding, this is your time to transfuse some platelets. All right, guys, we're all about that dispo. We're emergency medicine physicians. So are any of these GI bleeders going home, all the ICU? What's the plan here? Okay, so thankfully, there's some risk scoring systems to help us really assess our patients and see where they can go for disposition. So we'll start with the Rockall score. This was originally made with endoscopic views, but there is a pre-endoscopic score that can help us risk stratify inpatient mortality, but not necessarily outpatient mortality. I really find the GBS score helpful, which is the Glasgow-Blatchford scale, because if you have a score of zero or one, these are patients that are really likely safe for discharge with an inpatient mortality of less than one with an inpatient need for transfusion or any surgical intervention of less than 1%. And approximately 20% of patients presenting with upper GI bleeds actually have a GBS score of less than 1 or 0. Then, most recently, there's been a risk stratification system called the AIM-65 score, which has really helped us with inpatient mortality as well. Um, And this will really help us decide whether our patients need to go to the ICU or can be managed on the floor. Now, that Glasgow... Blatchford scale. Is that the same Glasgow guy that did the coma scale? I don't know. He's really smart, huh? Yeah, he's Super everywhere busy. everywhere with all these scoring systems. But okay, let's talk about the unstable patient. This is the scary one. The patient that presents into your resuscitation bay, 
This patient comes in with profuse hematemesis, dark stools, and now they've got a blood pressure of 70 over 40, they're tachycardic, and room air saturations of 93%. Okay, Jeremy, sick or not sick? Uh, sick. Jeremy's a new second year. He needs to be tested. I'm still learning. So I walk into these rooms and I immediately want IV, O2, monitor, and then I run through my ABCs. So let's start with the airway and getting that secured. Sounds like it may be in jeopardy at this point. So for airway and breathing, obviously I want to pre-oxygenate this patient. I want to limit the bag valve mask because you can imagine if I'm bagging this patient and filling their stomach with air, soon enough I'm going to have a bunch of vomit with blood all over me. And I don't want that. Also, the hemoglobin dissociation curve is shifted to the right in anemia. So the patients are going to have less oxygen carrying capacity and really require that extra oxygenation. I'll probably position this patient upright. I want to do RSI, but you could possibly do a delayed sequence intubation if the patient is having difficulty being oxygenated. So this is not a board exam test, so hopefully these things will be occurring simultaneously. The next step is circulation. We're going to basically be starting our mass transfusion protocol here, which is balanced transfusion of a one-to-one-to-one resuscitation. We want to reverse their coagulopathy. That's where history is important. Are they on warfarin? Are they cirrhotic? In that case, they'll need some vitamin K, IV, FFP, and maybe considered four-factor FFP or K-Centra. Are they on a NOAC? These are becoming more and more popular of use, and now we have some antidotes like Praxibine, and we can also use K-Centra for these. If they're thrombocytopenic, give platelets. If they're an end-stage renal patient, you can give DDAVP about 0.3 mics per kilogram, because remember, in these patients, they have platelets, they're just not working properly. We allow some permissive hypotension. Remember, when these patients have elevated blood pressures, they can actually have increased bleeding, which is a little counterintuitive, but our goal maps for these patients are about 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury. Next would be something like transexemic acid. There's a new trial coming out called the HALT-IT, which is supposed to have their data released in May of 2019, so we'll see what comes of this trial. And what would your pressure of choice be, Natalie? Vasopressin. Yeah, vasopressin seems like a great idea and a good choice for this and uh, as well as norepinephrine. Boom, third year. All right, well, sometimes you do all that, Jeremy, and it just doesn't work. We've got one other thing in our back pocket, and what's that? The balloon. The balloon, we're trying to tamponade it, trying to block off that blood just in time for all of our consults to get in. So I'm gonna just take a quick step through what a Blakemore is and how it can help. So a Blakemore tube is the one that we have at our facility, and it essentially is an esophageal balloon as well as a gastric balloon. What you're going to be doing is you're going to be inserting this tube all the way down into the stomach, inflating your gastric tube, pulling up, making sure to get some traction, and then you're going to try and tamponade your esophageal presumed varices at this point with the esophagus balloon. Your goal millimeters of mercury are going to be 30 to 45 in order to obtain complete hemorrhage control. This is just a brief overview, and I would really recommend some of the online video demonstrations before going after and doing this because it could cause some high morbidity. So the last thing is really the disposition of the patient and possible consults. So, you know, are they going to the ICU or are they going to the floor? This patient, obviously, ICU. And endoscopy will need to be called or RGI colleagues. IR for possible embolization versus an emergent TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunts is what that means. Sounds fancy. Yeah, or possible surgery. All right, guys, so that was a wrap on upper GI bleeds, but let's go over a few core concepts. Remember, keep your differential broad for upper GI bleeds. It could be really a lot of things. 
but perform a focused HPI and physical exam to help you figure out what it is. Use risk stratification tools like the GBS, Rockall, or AIM-65 to help with your disposition. Remember that the most important intervention that affects mortality is giving antibiotics to your cirrhotic upper GI bleeds, as well as restrictive transfusion with only those with a hemoglobin less than 7. Other treatment remedies include PPIs with no difference between IV versus oral or drip versus bolus therapy, somatostatins, and promotility agents. In a hemodynamically unstable upper GI bleed, remember your ABCs. Secure the airway early, resuscitate with blood products, and consider reversal of coagulopathies. Know how to place your Hail Mary Blakemore tube while making early consultations to your ICU, GI team, IR, and surgical colleagues. Well, that's a wrap from the EM Guidewire team here at J. Lee Garvey Studios. We're out. Deuces. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. Seems he out. That's how to save a life. How to save a life. How to save. Everybody remember that Grey's Anatomy episode? Yeah, but I don't think we have the rights to. Oh, we can't say that. We might have to do Do you remember that doctor show on TV with a lot of hot people? They sang that song and it was weird.